The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Anything else? Dude. Roll it. <laughs> glasses are all it. filled? Let's do it. All right. Welcome, folks, to episode number 52 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday evening, October 25th. Thursday evening. Thursday evening. Thursday October, evening 25th. October 25th. Jack, uh, step away from the jack. No, no, I'm just awesome. I'm so excited because today is, of course, the second day of the 2007 World Series. And oh, that's right. That's going on. My beloved Red Sox made it into the World Series in spite of my... my uh, in spite of themselves. No, no, oh, man. <laughs> How can you say such a thing? The Red Sox were on course. They were, the Red Sox were in Red first Sox. place. The Red Sox were in first place since like the second week of the season, and they were in first place for the entire season. Well, wait a and second. They were down now, are we, are, 3 1. And are, are we doing a baseball podcast or are we doing an aviation podcast? We're, we're doing the I important things too- in life podcast, which is usually aviation, but for a minute or two is baseball. I think that was two swings and two hits. Uh, listen, uh, the baseball season is over. Speak, so says the yeah. Yankees fan. Yeah. So, so says, says the, the Yankees fan. Yeah, right. Okay. Let's say hi to the other folks here in the virtual hangar with us this evening. <laughs> our, uh, our, our diehard Yankees fan is, uh, is James Winbrandt. Hi, James. James is an author and aviation journalist. And uh, are you still, still in New York City this, year, uh, this time of year? or? Yes, I am. I really people expect me to be gone, but that usually doesn't happen till January or February. Ah, so and wait. especially not when it's like in the mid seventies here. Isn't it a strange year? I know. The it's it's traditionally historically, uh we get our first frost up here in New England in mid October and uh and now it's, you know, third week in October and we even haven't we haven't even gotten into the thirties yet. I was looking the other day and the and the uh, the records show that we haven't even gotten below forty yet this year, let alone get all the Amazing. way down to freezing. It's just very strange. It's, Amazing. But if this is what climate change is all about, I'll take it. It's good. It's, yeah. Right. Yeah. Welcome, James. Also with us in the hangar this evening is Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. And he's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, You've had a busy week. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm kind of avi- aviation oriented right now. So. Yeah, I was going to. Th- I thought you were going to say aviated out or something like that. You, it's been a busy week. You've. You, I get the feeling you have a lot of stories to tell just from this past week. So, uh, and we'll stretch some of those out over the future. That'll become clear okay, in a few minutes. Right. In the meantime, moving yeah. on. And also in the hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz, and he's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Hi, Jack. Uh, 
James and Dave. I hope everybody's doing well. Everybody sounds good anyway, and uh, hope we're ready for another fine evening of uncontrolled airspace. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and uh, yeah. thanks for your help with the uh, headset here the other night. To get oh, my going. pleasure. My pleasure. I. Uh, I usually don't do service calls uh, like that. Um, and nobody gives service like you do. I can. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going close to that. But, you don't uh, have to, man. The heat varies. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of, there's a fourth voice here. And that that's right. Be? Oh, oh that's right. Of course. Yeah. See, oh, see, you got me. I even moved away from the right page. I'm Jack Hodgson. <laughs> I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where the weather is fine so uh what we're we talking about here so all right, i want to get so, we got to get this kind of trivial little thing out of the way first all right this is just really not in the scheme of things all that important but what the heck we'll talk about anyways and that is that that our friend dave higdon has been moonlighting on us here he's been out like i don't know late dating us or whatever kind of metaphor you want to dave appeared uh on uh, another podcast this past week and uh, all kidding aside it was really cool it was it was a lot of fun to listen to um dave was a guest on uh, pilot will's podlog podcast uh, where he and Will talked for about an hour about all sorts of aviation things. Some of the stories that we'd sort of gotten a hint of here on the in the hangar, but uh, some other ones are interesting too. That that was a lot of fun, Dave. Did you enjoy doing that, or how'd yeah, that come was, about? I mean, you know, he just uh, gave it, you a call or something. Or? Yeah, Will Will dropped me a note. Uh, something that we said in episode fifty kind of got him thinking about you know this would be fun to talk about and he uh, dropped me a note and asked uh, whether i'd be interested in coming on and talking about memorable flights or whatever else that i wanted to talk about uh, in, it's like well memorable flights is going to be the easiest thing in terms of uh, of having to prepare because uh, they're the same flights that i like to talk to you know in, in, in a lot of hangar flying venues uh, because the the ones that really stood out from from the the routine ones, uh, mm -hmm. whether it was a destination or conditions or or, or uh, international travel or something like that. So uh, spent about an hour Friday last week uh, talking with Pilot Will, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, you know he uh, made me sound you know better than than i would expect no to, it's to sound to myself it sounded great and some of it like i said some of it was familiar to those of us who have been talking to you here in the hangar or or talking to you over beers at fratellos or something like that but uh, one thing i thought was interesting though is that you didn't make clear so you're talking about the fact that and and we've heard bits and pieces of the story before that that you got your private pilot license and then like that weekend went on this literally across country i mean you flew all over america um in the week after you got your private and yeah what you neglected to tell in in the version that you told on Will's podcast was that you've been an aviator for some time, that you had been flying ultralights and you've been flying hang gliders and so forth. And and sort of anyone not familiar with the backstory might think that you were like a student pilot on Friday and on Monday you were winging around America. Uh, so there, I hadn't thought of that before. That's, that's a new perspective for me, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I, 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 that is unusual. I mean, I think a lot of people would be a little more timid about, uh, you know, that they were a student pilot and I mean, truly new to aviation and just got their ticket and then uh, wouldn't go well, and, necessarily and, and, go winging off like that. I certainly in, didn't. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, the, the, the trip that we took, you know, the long and short of it is to pass my check ride on a Sunday, the Sunday before Labor Day weekend, the Friday of Labor Day weekend, my bride Annie and I launched off in our little Cherokee 140 
to my hometown in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Stayed the night with my with my parents. Got up the next morning, flew to Leesburg, Virginia, and surprised her parents and 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 one of her brothers. So they thought we were staying Labor Day weekend and just going to you know do hundred dollar hamburgers in the Cherokee. And their first question was. You only had your license a week. Is it legal for you to be this far from home? Uh, <laughs> which was, you know, kind of understandable. But uh, I think probably I had every bit Still as good much question. of the nerves and anxiety mm-hmm. about doing this uh-huh. as, as as any new pilot would, because compared to you know ridge soaring or thermaling a valley in a in, in a hang glider where. I might land deliberately 50 or 60 miles from where I started, but chances are I'm, I'm, I'm going to wind up back in the landing field of the launch site uh, or ultralights where I did do about a 180-mile trip once, but it was with a group of other people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had pieces of road atlas strapped to our leg and basically followed an interstate from about, you know, two miles off one wing. Uh, so this thing are going 1,000 miles. Uh, with uh, some of it night flying on the first day, uh, going into airports that I'd never flown into before, going into the Washington, D.C. Capitol airspace for the first time. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there, it, it, was not, it was not taken like, ah, I've done this before. Uh, I think I spent, you know, 12 hours laying out around on charts and marking it with color-coded inks and, you know, and, and realizing later under the red lights that uh, red inks don't work all that <laughs> Well, maybe I'm the exception. Let me ask this question of James and Jeb. After you think back, way back in some cases, yeah. to when you first got your private, how long after that did you go on your first kind of significant cross-country? Uh you know, I really don't remember. It really kind of depends on what you have, what you call significant. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember. Um, well, let's see. I got my private in uh, April of '74. Uh, I did a few um, extended um, Civil Air Patrol missions, um, flying around South Georgia, this airport, that airport, that kind of thing. Um, the the first really long cross country. Um, that I remember uh, was in 76, actually, from Athens, uh, Georgia, down to Tifton, Georgia, my hometown. Um, and I was uh, prepared for that. I, I, I'd, you know, been through uh, a good, you know, good number of sectionals, and, and uh, you're looking at, you know, what, 150 nautical mile trip or something like that. Um, the, the one that really sticks out in my mind, though, uh, was in uh, the fall of 1980, and I was um, flying from uh, the D.C. area, from Dulles, actually, back when Dulles was a sleepy little backwater, down to Asheville, North Carolina. And this was right around the election. I was working on Capitol Hill at the time, the, the 1980 general election. And I was carrying a couple of staffers for this congressman down to Asheville for uh, um their little election event and whatnot, and uh, being the scrupulous and dedicated private pilot I was, um, I had to know, you know, what these women weighed. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So you needed to. Okay. So I asked, um, in a roundabout way, could someone tell me? You know <laughs> what the weight is going to be for my weight and balance um, planning, 
And the answer I got back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The answer I got back was, by when? (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? They're going on a diet. What are they going to do? It means they were on a perpetual diet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At which point I. Well, you just tell them it's not unlike a fuel burn calculation, and uh, that would that would have gone over really well. (laughs) 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 At which point, I decided that there's no way that this was a Piper Archer of fairly good, useful load. There, there was no way that um, that particular airplane with only three people and and some bags and and some gas would be out of balance or overweight. So I just decided that maybe the better part of valor was to forego a precise calculation of weight and balance for the trip. And uh, just now it can be told. Now now the story can be told. That's right. <laughs> Statute of limitations is long. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can top that, James, but do you remember your first long cross-country after uh, you got your private? Well, I do. I got my license in 83 and started renting. And so the flights that I would go on with a rental 172 or Warrior tended to be out to the Vineyard or Block Island or such. Actually, not the Vineyard, Block Island much more so. But a friend of mine, uh, Bill Burns, who's actually down in Sarasota now, who I uh, hope Jeb will be getting together with one of these uh-huh. days. Uh, co-owned a warrior he got his uh, license just uh the same year i did and we just we had met before and then just ran into each other at a a press bash and it turned out we had both gotten our private tickets not long before that and uh shortly thereafter he went in on a partnership on a warrior and we decided that we would fly down to florida for the holidays and that was really the first long cross country, what I would call. And I remember getting together with him beforehand, spreading out all the sectionals. Of course, this was before GPS, so it was going to be VOR to VOR and just kind of laying the route out and all our cross radials and where we'd check (laughs) and, uh, you know, where we were going to stop for fuel. And things went pretty much according to plan we, until we got to McKinnon uh, uh, in uh, the Golden Isles of Georgia. Yeah, Brunswick. Yeah. Brunswick, uh, just north of the Brunswick VOR, where we planned to make a fuel stop. And uh, keep in mind, again, this was uh, the holidays, and I think it was probably the 23rd. And given the airspeed of a warrior and that we were going against prevailing winds on that route. Uh, we, and although we got an early start, we we're hitting there around, oh, you know, five, I'm guessing now, something like that. And it's kind of dark down there. And people are out on their holiday party there. So, oh, uh, we have fuel, but there's no one here to pump it for you. Yeah. Uh, okay, they're at a party, but there's fuel right down in uh, uh, Jekyll Island, which is, you know, as the warrior flies, five miles south of here. So, okay, but we decide, well, look, 
before we go there, let's make sure. I mean, who knew that they wouldn't have fuel here for whatever reason? So we called. Oh, yeah, come on down. We got fuel. It's here. Got a truck full of it for you. So thank you. Off we go into the night. Land uneventfully five miles south and taxi up. And sure enough, there's fuel and a truck full of it. But darn it, can't get the engine of the fuel truck started. (laughs) And if you can't start the engine of the fuel truck, you can't pump fuel. fuel. (laughs) I'm sorry, James. Go ahead. Well, what'd anyway, you do, James? Did you, I mean, were you getting low at this point, or was this just kind of an annoyance? Uh, no, we needed fuel. Yeah. I mean, we had some fuel to, you know, and we weren't sucking fumes or anything, but we needed fuel. Yeah. So there is the Glinco jet port, uh, you know, ten right. miles north of there. And so we said, all right, we'll we'll head over there and call. And yes, they had fuel. No, there wasn't a party going on. Yes, they could get the <laughs> truck started. Uh, yes, they By did now not you're developing a whole World special checklist, right? <laughs> yes. So we taxi out, and and Bill, much to his credit, says, wait a second. You know, this was our first, both of our first long cross country. Now it's night. We'd be taking out over water. And he just goes and looks in the fuel tanks, and he just didn't like, he didn't yeah. see as much as he would have liked to. Taxied back, called the motel, got a room for the night. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good decision. Uh, yeah. Um, I, years ago, um, I was working at, as a line boy at the local airport, and um, we had a crop duster flying an old Stearman, big radial engine, you know, the whole the the whole thing. Uh, uh, and uh, he was in and out during this during the summer, of course. So he was in and out several times during the day, and we never really knew until he landed and we got a phone call uh, from his operation down on the other end of the field if he needed fuel. So sure mm-hmm. enough, one day um, the phone rings. Yeah, he needs fuel. So I run out. I hop in the Avgas truck, and I go down there, and uh, of course. This was, I don't know how they are these days. They might be powered by an electric motor or something like this. But this was an older truck, probably built in the 60s or something. And uh, to get it to pump, you put the the wheel transmission in neutral, and then you engaged a PTO transmission, power takeoff transmission, which turned the pumps uh, for the avgas dispensing mechanism. And what what happens when you do that is the engine revs up, and it, it makes excess power and, and turns the pumps. Well, I uh, pulled up, pulled up in front of his airplane, got out, set the brake on the on the avgas truck, set the PTO on the avgas truck, pumped whatever gas he needed, uh, was getting down off the ladder, uh, putting everything back, and the avgas truck runs out of gas. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And he is he is madder and a wet him because I am blocking him and he needs to get back out. Oh, he can go make money with his crop dusting business. So I think we ended up actually like three or four of us Pushing getting getting behind. No, that or I drank quick, drained some gas, 
in, out of the sump of the of the avgas truck enough to throw into the gas tank to make it to the engine to get the truck started again and get it ten feet out of the out of the guy's way so he could he could uh, go ahead and start his engine and get moving again. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, trucks avgas trucks occasionally have. Their own. <laughs> um, uh, James, I'm I'm proud of you. <laughs> there's a there's a little similar element to James' story to that first uh, first country we took. Uh, we flight planned for Augusta, Kansas to Festus, Missouri, ah, uh, Festus. about f- about eleven twelve miles outside the uh, St. Louis Class Bravo, uh, about two miles from the banks of the Mississippi on the west side. Mm. And we called ahead to make sure that they were going to be open. And I didn't ask about the truck starting, but uh, <laughs> the guy says, yeah, we'll be there until, you know, seven o'clock. And uh, very cool. Very cool. Well, we get off a little bit late. Winds are not quite what they were forecast to be. Uh, and then I almost overshot the airport because Annie and I just got mesmerized looking at this stretch of interstate highway running up from Arkansas into Missouri and up towards St. Louis. Labor Day weekend, Friday. And it's just white lights in one direction and red lights in the other. And we looked at one another and kind of smiled and said, it is so cool not to be down there. (laughs) In the meantime, I'm descending and I, I looked down and I said, wow, there's the river. We're not supposed to be at the river yet. There's the airport back there. <laughs> Turn around, didn't see any lights. We key, you know, the, it's it's not sunset yet, but it's getting it's getting into the evening hours, and we land uneventfully, roll out, and as I'm tra- taxiing back to the turnoff, I see this pickup truck leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so we turned in on the ramp, sped it up a little bit, and shut down, and the pickup truck stopped. Backup lights came on, backed back into his parking space. The guy comes out and says, are you the guy from Wichita? Went, uh, yeah, uh, unless you were expecting, you know, uh, another guy from Wichita. I guess that's us. Oh, we'd just about given up on you. He'd waited until 730 mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on our phone call and had just about given up. So we, we, we lucked out. We got our gas. He gave us time to take a nature break and the candy machine worked and got a cup of and, uh, as we're going out, it really is dusk. We took off to the north and took a turn out a 300. There's a little, some little hills there near Festus. Well, the airport's no longer there, but just to the east of it. So to clear those hills and the antenna up there, I, I made a west turn, a 270 back to the east. And as we did that, we were looking right down on top of a high school football game. Mm-hmm. All lit up. You could see the people in the stands and the kids running back and forth. And between seeing the bumper-to-bumper traffic on the interstate and seeing this American fall tradition starting up on Labor Day weekend, it was like, I don't ever want to travel any other way but this. That's right. That's right. Mm. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, well I, I do have uh, one other fuel story that might be apropos. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is uh, actually while I was on my way to Alaska uh, a couple of years ago after Oshkosh. This was the Swan, the Swan trip? Yes, when I was going up to work with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, planning out the route, my goal was to get 
fuel at the last place possible on the route in the U.S. because the fuel is much pricier in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there was an airport in uh, North Dakota along the way. And so, of course, I called multiple calls and actually City Hall was in charge of the fuel out there, but made multiple calls, did everything <laughs> I could to ascertain that, yes, no doubt about it, we've got the fuel there, yes, you know, you can use a credit card, yes, 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 yes. So I overfly the fuel, and the the closest place to it is Williston, where I've been before in North Dakota, uh, which is, I don't know, at least 15 nautical miles behind me. And I landed, there might as well have been tumbleweeds blowing down the runway there. Uh-huh. And uh, the, there was fuel, but there was no way to get it. The pump was all <laughs> locked up. You have a bad, bad track record. Desolate, nothing. And somebody, suddenly somebody's whipping by in a pickup truck. And I wave him down and explain my plight. And he was so kind. He, uh, he had a key. He opened up the pump. He took a check <laughs> from me, fueled me up. And thank God I was able to get on my way. But, I mean, I asked every conceivable question. So I guess if there's any doubt, you, you know, and you're in a situation like that, I guess next time I would go to the larger facility that that I knew kind of had, you know, traffic going there every so often. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll we'll have to schedule a, a, an episode sometime in the future to, just to talk about FBO FUBARs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was thinking. We should, uh, you know, we've gotten some great, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the episode, but um, we've gotten some great stories from folks about, we, we invited people to tell us their open door and open window stories. Right, oh, right. Oh, 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 choose me, pick me. Oh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cotter. <laughs> we'll come back to that later on, but we got some great stories from people, and uh, we put them on the, we'll come back to tell it, but we got some great stories. Let's uh, let's invite people now to send in their stories about uh, strange places that they've stopped for fuel or whatever during cross countries. Uh, I think that I mean there are obviously yeah. some great noteworthy, stories out there. Note, noteworthy airport, airports and FBOs, and uh, it might as well throw in interesting courtesy cars. I was going to say, mm, might as well yeah. throw in the crew cars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, send us those by uh, by email to uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace dot com or call the listener line. The phone number's on the front page of our website, and uh, tell us your story about uh, strange places you've stopped while flying. We're going to move on here, um, but, but I do want to kind of go back and, and finish the original thought, which is to remind everyone that Dave has appeared on uh, episode number eight of the Pilot's Flight Podlog, student, or former student pilot, now private pilot Will's uh, podcast. You should check it out. You can go to pilotwill.libson.com, and you can uh, get the – we'll also put that link in the show notes. And uh, there's, there's a lot of interesting uh, folks that, that Will has spoken to since he started this new podcast. Dave is the latest and greatest of those, and, uh, and you can uh, – Hear a few more of Dave's stories from another different perspective. And my favorite, my favorite line. I've got a new name for you, Dave. All right. Um, we had heard the flight to Mexico story before, but I hadn't heard that you were being referred to as Senior Capitan. <laughs> oh, that's one of the great things about traveling in in Mexico. I mean, it's worth going it just to have the airport officials call you Capitan. Capitan, Capitan. <laughs> you know, think about this picture. We're we're walking across a ramp in Mexico. I've just changed into beach shorts. Uh, a Hawaiian shirt, and I'm in sandals, and I'm not responding to Senior Capitan. Hard to imagine. 
Yeah, like I hollered at me five or six times before Annie finally nudged me and said, uh, Doc, I think he's talking to you. <laughs> so uh, I left my shoulder board on my other Hawaiian shirt. So we've got we've got Senior Capitan, we've got Doc, we've got Runway Dave. Uh, <laughs> how, how many how many more nicknames do we have for here for for Mister Higgins? Every time he gets in big jam, he has to change his nickname. So he's, uh, <laughs> I guess that's what it is. Yeah, different so, stages. Protect different the guilty. Stages. Anyways, yes. Moving on, James. Thank last you. time you were with us here in the virtual hangar. <laughs> <laughs> last time you were here in the virtual hangar, James, you were we telling were us about Atlanta. you were in the midst of your. Uh, oh well, that's. I'm sorry. So I think it's the time before that. I don't think you've updated us on. Uh, what the result was of getting your annual on your because we, we, we were kind of interested in how many uh, uh what when, was the phrase aviation that's right because last yeah. we heard from this story um you, your airplane was in uh, was in minnesota uh, still, that's right still getting what became of all that i assume you've gotten your airplane back by now yes i have the airplane back and uh when i went to get it uh, Randy Dufoe, good friend of the show and colleague of ours, was kind enough to come with his lovely wife and pick me up at the airport, and we had a lovely dinner together, and uh, really nice of him to come and do that, of, of both he and his wife, and thanks for that. That was uh, one of the mediating aspects of an otherwise kind of... Uh, well, the journey was great, but contemplating those aviation units and how it would somehow leave me perhaps an aviation eunuch was not, <laughs> very, <laughs> was not very pleasant to contemplate. Uh, now, a I have to... James, James, aviation maintenance unit. <laughs> right. I think of an aviation maintenance unit as something like a liquid that comes out of a sump uh, a sump drain attached to your bank account. Yeah. That's or right. something like that they have to tie, take your uh, arms and one leg, legs on another and twist right. to kind of squeeze well, it out of you. That, that or they do, sometimes they just pick you up and turn you uh, upside, turn you upside down. And, yeah. and everything, anything right. that falls out is theirs. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, let me fast forward for a moment to say I still have not gotten my accounting of aviation maintenance units, but I believe, I believe to be candid with you and the audience that it is going to reach into the uh, five-figure sums or double-digit, low double-digit aviation Ooh. units, possibly. Ooh. Now, and that ain't the end of it either. Uh, I just let me... You, bring up you, man you on Mooney TV guy. says, and there's more. Yeah, you Mooney and, guys can afford it, though, so it's okay. Uh, yeah, tell me, sure. Uh, because you mean it is so economical in every other way. Of yeah, that's what I meant. That's so exactly what we're I meant. not, yeah. right. Uh, I mean, when it rains, it pours, because along with this, um, you know, my computer went at the same time, my Bose series headset went out, and right after all this, two weeks after I get the plane back, my starter brushes go out while I'm on my way to the gatherings of Mustangs and Legends. So Every, Everything it, you touched failed. I bet you, you were afraid, I bet you were afraid to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I've always been afraid to do that. <laughs> so, did, uh, you, did you get stranded someplace, James? 
No, I, I stopped for fuel in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, while I was on my way to the gathering. Uh, and after a lot of cranking and discussion, because I, the batteries were fully charged, uh, so we just though hooked it up, and I cranked it, finally got it underway and continued. And then after the uh, Sunday, I just kind of w- went to the airport early to, to leave, and uh, they had done some looked at it the, the day before while I was at the gathering and found that there were n- no problems with the connections or anything and that it was most likely the brushes, which is what it turned out to be. But get the starter is in the back of that engine and getting it off is, again, a labor intensive yeah. Uh, process and the fact that as you know part of the problem with my annual was that they found corrosion on the engine mount had to take out the engine and put it all back which I'm told is about 25 hours of labor right there and had I known or about the starter at that point while it was off it would have been easy enough to, to do it then sure. but I guess it's one of those things you don't know until it goes uh, so there you nice go. The thing about I mean, starters going is that they are not a flight critical item. That's true. Yeah, because you can always hand prop that movie, right? Well, well mm, you know. You haven't heard about the optional rope starter? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, we don't want to have the Johnson it, bars. They put in a rope pull. And, huh. Oh, you remember those so, old lawn, remember the lawnmowers you had with the inertial starters on them? You you turned the little hand crank and you turned it and it got tighter and tighter and stiffer and stiffer and, and harder and harder. And when you finally you couldn't turn it anymore, you flopped it over and no. it it, it uh, re- released the spring and the spring had been wound up and it spun the engine and hopefully it started, but most of the time it didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, one don't. of those. None yeah, of us. Yeah, I, none of us, Jeb, is old enough to remember anything. Oh, like okay, that. fine. Yeah, okay, never mind. Well, okay, those, those must be later than the ones where you pull the thing, where they pull the cord to get them going. This was this was, um, you know, contemporary with the cord pull. But I don't know. It was somebody's idea of of doing it easier than than uh, having a cord pull? It was just an inertial start. And oh, uh, uh, we've had airplanes did, where you crank the flywheel, right? Right. Get the flywheel going, and then engage a clutch, and that big spinning flywheel uh-huh. would spin the engine. And you know, it, 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 I guess that's where the term "cranky pilot" must have come. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, I had a car one time that I always had to park facing downhill at the top of a hill, so I sort of oh, know what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> what else is going on? So, James, your your airplane is airworthy now, right? You. Are- oh yes, it's airworthy now. Okay. Uh, and, you know, they did a very thorough job on it there. Uh, again, they found stuff that needed to be done. And hopefully everything has been done and needs to be done for the rest of my life and then some. <laughs> hopefully no one will have to do as thorough a job on your airplane yeah. in the future. Let us, let us know how that works out, James, in about yeah. 10 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah right. So, well, no. What are you going to do again? It, it you know, uh, you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, uh, it's either that or it's you know one of the most one of the most expensive lawn ornaments ever. ever there you ever go. Seen. That's right. That's Correct. right. Well, let's see now. So I've been so wrapped up in the last couple of weeks between baseball and buying a house that uh, that's another story um, that I missed out on this big bit of news. Uh, so fill me in what the story is on the FAA administrator. Who's oh, gonna, who's going to tell this uh, story? I, I, I literally knew nothing about this until you guys hinted at it. Now I sort of think I know what's well, going on, but tell us the story. A, we have a nominee uh, f- 
to to take uh, Marion Blakey's uh, spot at the FAA. Uh, and with that as kind of uh, an introduction, I will turn it over to Dave. Well, uh, the uh, the agency hasn't been without a PIC since Marion left. Uh, it got handed off to, to the next in line, a gentleman named Bobby Sturgill, who's been serving as acting administrator, as our old buddy Barry Valentine d- did for uh, mm-hmm. close to a year after David Henson left the FAA. Sure. And... Uh, uh, there's been conflicting advice to the White House about what to do. You know, leave it in, you know, in, in uh, acting hands and let the next administration, whoever that may be, fill it because it's a five-year fixed term. Uh, move on it with somebody really agreeable to everybody right now because there's so much at stake and we can't afford to lose inertia. And it sounds like the latter advice was what the uh, what the White House took because uh, a couple of days ago the president announced the White House announced that they were going to be nominating Mr. Sturgill to be the administrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a five-year term, as I said. Um, now here's here's and the reaction has been just almost just just short of a love fest from uh-huh. the industry. Why is huh. that? What do we know about this guy? He. Uh, well, he's a, he's a pilot. Gig before the FAA. He's a pilot. He's ex-military. He's ex-airline. Uh, he learned to fly in little airplanes. Moved up. Uh, he came to the FAA when uh, 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 Marion Blakey came over from the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, so Mr. Sturgill was at NTSB for a while before he came to the FAA. Uh, uh, his uh, his. Uh, uh, Naming being named acting administrator when uh, Marion left was uh, greeted with uh, you know some some pretty positive feedback by the uh, usual suspects in the alphabet group territory, and most of what I read after hearing about this uh, the other day uh, has been similar similarly positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the alphabet group people are already you know queuing up. Uh, they're already actively working to get new meetings with the acting administrator in his new role as administrator designee. Now, his name's not formally been sent to the Senate yet. That'll happen in the next week to two weeks. Well, but the he, president's he, definitely said he's nominating him. Here's mm-hmm. my question. I've been sitting here itching to ask it. Um, has any, does anybody remember any other occasion where... Um, the administrator leaves for whatever reason, an acting administrator is named, and then the acting administrator is, in fact, the nominee to replace the previous administrator. I cannot think of an occasion where that's happened. I'm, I'm not being I, I, critical. I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not no, pointing fingers or anything I, like that. I think it's just uncommon, and I think, uh, uh, for once, maybe, knock wood, uh, uh, don't hold your breath, maybe this White House has done something right for aviation. Uh I think radiation. I need more of this pinch. I think yes. aviation in general is so far down the priority list, so completely off the radar screen. I, I, I don't disagree. That uh, I think hearing the feedback that the, the, the community uh, has a fairly positive response to Mr. Sturgill and the advice that somebody at the head permanently is needed because of all the things that are going on. I think that kind of made it easy for them to say, uh, duh. Okay. Ding. Sure. You, you want him, you got him. Uh, Mm -hmm. you get him for five years. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, from, 
the feedback that's come to me through some of the alphabet groups. He's uh, he's he's capable. He's smart. He knows his way around. He is a pilot, uh, and which we need to we need to bring this up here. This will be the first pilot administrator, presuming he's confirmed, uh, since uh, Barry Valentine was acting and since David Henson was permanent was uh, Henson. back before Jane Garvey. That's right. over 10 years, folks. That's right. Hmm. Are we, are we concerned? Pilot. We've not had an aviator. Uh, we've had people with peripheral aviation experience who were considered good administrators. Yeah, And under, under any circumstances, I agree that's a good thing, but are we concerned about the fact that he's from the airlines? Uh, no, he was a pilot at the airlines. He, uh, if if he would, had been a major airline executive, uh, you know, all of his life, I, I I would have more concerns. But he was a line pilot. Uh, he went to that from uh, serving in the military, being a, a combat pilot. Uh, he came to the combat pilot from fr- flying smaller stuff. Uh, I I get a sense. I don't know the gentleman, but I get a sense that he's considered fairly well balanced and fairly well rounded. And not a water carrier in particular for any particular uh, uh, special interest. So what is going on with the fact that on September 30, FAA funding, I, I assume that got extended somehow, but I never heard anything about it. Well, that situation is still up in the air. Um, it got ex- to, to, we're talking about the FAA reauthorization here, right? Yes. There was a continuing oh, resolution FAA. good till November 19, I believe it is. Right. I, b- okay. I believe that's correct. And uh, what they did it was, uh, and this is for um, uh, most departments of the government. I think um, of yeah. the thirteen appropriations bills that Congress must pass each year, tw- um, one of them has been has been passed. Twelve remain outstanding. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I don't want to get into the macro politics of any of that. But it's not even unusual. No, and, and it's not even unusual. It's it's, it's it not happens. Even unusual. It happens with great regularity and has happened with great regularity now for mm-hmm. going on 30 years in my memory. And, and having, having worked on Capitol Hill back in the 70s and 80s, um, I, somewhere in that time frame was the last time uh, that all 13 or however many it was back then appropriations bills were enacted uh, before the end of the fiscal year. But it was called be, be appropriating, that, appropriatingly. Right. Be, be all that as it may, uh, the FAA and all of these other agencies and departments of the federal government, were f- the funding for which was folded into a uh, continuing resolution, as Dave points out, I believe through uh, November 19 or whatever. Um, the the Congress is dealing with, you know, trying to come up with the the appropriate compromises and agreements to um, move forward on all of that. Not least of which, in our view, is of course the FAA reauthorization issue, into which is also tied the issue of user fees. We're back to where we were probably three weeks, whatever it was, three weeks ago, where the House has passed HR two eight eight one. Uh, which is a bill that more or less continues the existing funding scheme, and I'm going to use the word scheme, uh, for the FAA, um, um, user, uh, I should say excise taxes, user taxes uh, on aviation gasoline. There's a slight hike from the current or the current uh, um, excise tax levels. Uh, no user fees in the in the House bill. There is plenty of money in the bill to 
move forward with next gen and buy pencils and paper clips and and lay down pavement uh, for new runways. Uh, that is the preferred bill by most of the industry. The the notable exception being, of course, the airlines, which want the Senate bill, which has not uh, been passed by the Senate. Um, and in fact, um, you know, there's a lot of little squiggly ways that the Senate could. Uh, uh, could could act next. They could take the House bill and amend it with the Senate bill, and uh, request a conference. They can pass their own bill. Uh, I don't know that any of that has happened, and I I, I apologize. I should know, but I don't. Well, uh, but that's that's kind of where things are. The last action on the Senate bill was a a, a, a committee different than the one that put in the twenty five dollar IFR filing fee that's in that bill that the GA community finds objectionable. And if memory serves me, a subsequent hearing, it was either an appropriating committee or a, a taxing committee. Probably finance. Uh, finance. I, th- I think it was finance. They stripped that out. Ah. Uh, so <clears throat> as of its latest modification, but as Jeb rightly points out, you know, the, there's a lot that could be done. Uh, they could gut the Senate bill, insert the House bill, and we'd be done, uh, mm-hmm. presuming it passed the Senate and, and got through the the, uh, the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, they're still concerned that even if we get uh, uh, agreement in the Senate to go along with the House version, the House version contains some language about you know, reopening negotiations between the FAA and the National Association of Air Traffic mm-hmm. Controllers. And uh, however you feel about that, that's in the bill. Uh, right now, the White House considers that killer language. Uh, mm-hmm. But that, that language could well come out before it's done. We don't know. We mm-hmm. don't know. And we're probably going to see have to see another continuing resolution, another CR, to continue funding past the November date because it's not yeah. looking like it's going to get done in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's too many other uh, uh, fish to fry here. Um, one does anybody recall the Senate bill number? They're recommending to uh, to some of their lawmakers that they just CR this thing through November of next year. <laughs> well, that's stranger things have been known to happen, but I don't think the White House is going to let that happen. I don't think so either. Um, too, I, many, uh, too many, too um, many uh, uh, fights to pick. Yep. Fights, fight, fights to pick. That's right. Hmm. Moving on here. Let's see. Uh, we're running a little long here, so I'm kind of jumping around on our list here. Uh, James, list. Right. James, what's the story on Beach Party? Well, the Beach Party is uh, a celebration they have. And I don't know if they call it that every year. Or if it was because this year they were marking so many anniversaries. The 60th anniversary of the Bonanza, the 75th anniversary of Beechcraft, and the 75th anniversary of the staggering and the 70th anniversary of uh, another beach model, but uh, the Twin Beach, uh, of which there are a number of all these beautiful beachcraft down in Tullahoma, which is the site of the Beachcraft Heritage Museum. Now, that airport there, uh, I guess it's a Tango Hotel Alpha, used to be the site of a fly-in for stagger wings. Uh, and then they solicited the approval 
of Beechcraft, although no support in any way, to start a staggering museum there, which they did. And it kind of grew and more aircraft started, more Beechcraft started showing up for their annual uh, uh, party and gathering. And it is, the museum is now the Beechcraft Heritage Museum. It celebrates all the Beechcraft and it is a, a wonderful facility. The people couldn't have been nicer. So uh, I went down there with photographer Jim Lawrence. We were doing some work for Plane and Pilot and Pilot Journal. And uh, as I say, we got to meet wonderful people. The aircraft are spectacular. Over a score of stagger wings there, I actually was able wow. to get stick time in a beautiful stagger wing. Uh, met incredible people with incredible stories about how they got these airplanes. Uh, some of these stories are incredibly even heart-wrenching and all a study and determination and uh, love of aviation. And again, yes, there were B-18s there. Uh, there were twin bonanzas. Uh, there were bonanzas of every stripe, barons of every stripe. And during the day, unlike, say, uh, an Oshkosh where people fly in and then you know, and then the aerobatic teams come in all day long. These people are up in their planes doing flybys low over the runway, and you're seeing four ship uh, formations with B-18s and twin bonanzas and uh, stagger wings, and it is just a marvelous show to go and, and see. So we got to experience that for a couple of days. Uh, and on the way down was the uh, situation that I alluded to, uh, which would have to go in the memorable flight category of uh, an icing situation that arose. What happened? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, let's hear that. Well, uh, we went down on uh, a Thursday. Yeah, a Thursday never, say, never say we went down. Never say that. <laughs> All right. We launched. On, <laughs> we headed south. A, yeah, I guess you can't head a, west either, right? That would be a bad thing. Right. You don't want to head west. Uh, followed the sun, we could say, in, yeah. in that case. But uh, in this case, the uh, conditions were forecast and were uh, instrument. So I filed uh, the... There is a headwind in the direction we're going, so no sense trying to climb. Freezing level was forecast to be 8,000 to 12,000, so I filed for six. And uh, it's about 50 southwest of Martinsburg, say. Uh, oh. We're in the clouds. And I guess the MEA goes up, so they asked me to climb to 8,000. And so I started to climb. Now, let me preface this by saying uh, I've certainly encountered some ice before. Uh, with a turbocharged aircraft, you do have the potential to pick up ice really any day of the year, you know, if there is uh, clouds, because you can be up there where, you know. It's always that cold. It's always that cold. So I've, you, I've seen ice get on the aircraft before, and you know usually it's like a nuisance because your airspeed will immediately decline 15, 20 knots because the, the wing is so clean and doesn't like to be dirtied up. I got to 7,500 feet and looked out the window, and this was uh, an entirely different kind of situation. Uh, I had the twin horns that had formed uh, and it was just below freezing 
uh, twin horns had formed the entire length of the wings. Mm. And we're also coating the tailplane. And mm. airspeed suddenly was dramatically declining. And I, of course, got in with ATC and told them I needed lower. And they were a little lackadaisical about it. So I certainly stopped my climb. And it got worse in a hurry. So I told them I had to get lower. Uh, I didn't declare an emergency. But they uh, cleared me to go back down to six, and I told them, you know, I needed to really get down in a hurry and down to five somewhere. So they routed me down in a way, uh, a different route. I had to kind of go backwards to get to a route that I could uh, stay at 5,000. And even when I got to, you know, according to the OAT, was just on the plus side of freezing – that ice did not want to go away, and uh, you know it stayed there. My airspeed indicated airspeed was down in the eighties. Uh, wow. You know, it's sort of rumbling. I've of course increased the power, and you know, I mean, I'm thinking at the time. Well, you know, okay, eighty. You know, I, it's above my stall speed. Yeah, b- above the stall speed of a clean wing. You know, I I guess I was, uh, you know, who knows what the stall speed really was with the aircraft with that amount of ice on it. And and the weight of that, the weight of it. So, uh, you know, I took action, I think, pretty much as expeditiously as I could have. Uh, I think I did all the right things. Uh, It's just remarkable to see that it a build-up like that in that short of a time, uh, and I guess one of the lessons is you can't believe you know where the freezing level is going to be. Again, those are forecasts. Uh, be ready to you know to kind of do whatever, and uh, you know I can see the situation could have been worse. Let's say I needed to descend, and I was in an area where there were obstacles and, and such. So, how, uh, how high would you have had to go to be in the sunlight? Uh, I don't know, but I did, I've also been in situation before. I know about sublimation and ice. That is BS in my book. You it would take a long, long time. So the situation was not to climb and to seek sunlight with the amount of what I had on there. It was to get out of there, go down and, and you know, another 1500 feet. And I would be, you know, what I had just left was... Uh, you know, above freezing. So initial instrument work with my initial instrument instructor, we were flying to a new airport northeast of of, uh, of Kansas City International. And uh, we're going to do an instrument approach into the place. Brand new airport, already had a published approach. And uh, the forecast was for it to be warmer than it was turning out to being. Now, we were on top going up. But when the uh, controller started me into the procedure, uh, they wanted me down at an altitude that uh, corresponded with hitting the initial approach fix. And uh, in about three minutes, we picked up a quarter of an inch of ice. Mm-hmm. And in four minutes, uh, it started to cover the little tabs that open and close the the, the doors on the uh, fuel tank filler necks. And... Uh, mm-hmm. At that point, uh, the controller told me that I was going to have to be, uh, you know, I was going to have to do a, a one-turn hold because of traffic ahead of me. 
at that point, I firewalled the airplane, told mm-hmm. him that I was canceling and going back up into the sunlight. And my controller patted me on the head and said, Atta boy. Uh, we got up in the sunlight, and uh, it all went away in about five or six minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was right at 28, 29 degrees in the sunlight, but the radiation made enough of a difference yeah. that uh, we, we shed the ice pretty quickly after that. Uh, and we, we got, I figured, after measuring the little tabs on the fuel tank covers, that we'd gotten to just beyond a half an inch, and it was growing way too fast for my taste. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I it think, doesn't take any time at all. I think I think that non-pilots and new pilots don't really appreciate how serious ice is, and uh, I, you know, it, it's always impressed me that pilots I know, present company included, um, who I consider to be pretty serious, pretty confident pilots, have told me that one of the things that scare them more than anything is ice. It's one of the few things mm-hmm. that they just won't mess around with. And uh, yeah. there's really only two things to fear out there: ice and electricity. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can fly around turbulence. Uh, we can avoid ice. We can avoid electricity. The problem is that the ice and electricity uh, very often come along when you're, you know, when when the forecast wasn't there for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, turbulence up to a certain point, I'm willing to live with. But ice and electricity are, are going to keep me either on the ground or making a new decision somehow. Now, by, by, electricity, you mean, I know. You mean, by electricity, you mean thunderstorms? I mean thunderstorms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Those, are, you know, those are the two things that scare me the most, and uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, ain't going to happen. Um, I'll go take a look. Uh, you know, as long as, I can, as long as I can get back in. Um, but... Uh, um, been there, done that with with both sets of phenomena. Uh, thankfully, never had both at the same time. Mm-hmm. No, uh, which would be uh, uh, that, that, that's um, a that, that's a quadruple whammy because it's, yeah, that'd be a, uh, that'd be a real sphincter tightener. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, um, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've I haven't quite had it as bad as as uh, James James's uh, situation. Uh, but I've had it bad enough. There was a situation I got into. Um, <clears throat> I was out west. I was uh, actually going into Winslow, Arizona, for gas. Headed, headed. Mm. I've been on the west coast and was headed west. Uh, headed back east. I was by myself and um, punched through, you know, some puffies um, at around ten or eleven or twelve thousand feet. You know, on my way into Winslow and. Uh, I uh, didn't think too much about it. I, yeah, okay, it's it's a little bit below freezing, but uh, um, they didn't seem to be all that wet or anything like that. So, uh, oh yeah, there's a little bit of ice on the windshield, and and you know maybe a touch of frost or something like that on the wings. And uh, you know my destination's 50 miles ahead. I'm about to start letting down, and and uh, got a good head of steam, and, and there, there's no real issues here. There's plenty of clear air underneath me, and just kept right on getting it. And uh, landed in Winslow, taxied into the self-serve pumps there, shut down, and I, I get out of the airplane, and I hear this hissing noise. <laughs> and, and further inspection, it, it, it you know sounds like someone's dripping or running a, a, a hose or something like that on a rock. I could perhaps be more colorful, but you get the idea. <laughs> on a of, hot of, rock. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, you get the idea of, of what, what the noise is. I was like, well, what in the world is that? 
And I get, get down off the wing of the airplane and look around. And one of the vents, fuel vents, is leaking gasoline under pressure out on the ramp. And I said, well, that's odd. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it suddenly dawned on me that when I'd gone through that ice, that I had plugged up a vent. So I reached over and undid one of the fuel caps, the cap the, uh, that was uh, the cap on the wing that was uh, leaking the gas, and I hear this whoosh yeah. as the pressure inside the tank equalizes, hmm. and the the leaking stops. And of course, I'm on the ground in Arizona, and and uh, it doesn't take much for the for the ice to melt. But that, boys and girls, is the there's not so much a lesson about icing. But is a kind of the difference between known icing, uh, an airplane certificated for known icing, and an airplane not certificated for known icing. Because mm-hmm. one certificated for known icing would have fuel vent heaters on it, and we would not see that problem. Right. Well, huh. ask me this another time because I know we're, we're going to need to move here quickly. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, I want to talk about the, uh, the 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 myth that you can't pick up ice in clear air. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about that, too. We'll put that on the agenda for the future. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, we so last week uh, on the in the virtual hangar, we talked about uh, we were just kind of riffing on uh, on Airbus 380s, and then we t- got to talking about the Airbus 320 that uh, that tragically yeah. flew into the trees um, mm-hmm. uh, at an air show. You see, I, I'm not. I'm going to stop there because this is what got us in trouble last week, which was we started telling the story like we knew what we were talking about. And uh, and it turns out, at least according to a according to a listener, we didn't have the story quite right. Uh, we got an uh, email, uh, one of many great emails over the last week from Jim H. And Jim uh, wrote, uh, just listen to number 51, which I enjoyed as usual. I have two comments. Uh, he said, first, you guys are confused. He was so diplomatic. I just so He was. Yeah. He was very, very well, well-written email. Yeah, yeah. He, said, he said, first, you guys are confused about the crash of Air France 296. That accident was mainly the result of pilot error, he writes. He says, in fact, the captain went to prison for manslaughter, which... Mm. I, I guess I, I really didn't know this story. He says, uh, in particular, there was no real problem with the airplane. Like all jets, it takes a little time for the motors to spin up. If you fly your low pass too low and at an excessively high angle of attack, then you don't, uh, and then don't go around promptly, you too will fly into the trees, he writes. <laughs> um, and he gives us a link to uh, the aviationsafety.net database uh, that I'm not going to try and read here, but we'll put in the show notes if you want to get details on this particular incident. So uh, thanks to Jim. Jim, also, the second comment he made that I'm not going to go into right now, but he has some interesting comments uh, and uh, his uh, his perception and perspective on ADSB. Uh, and uh, I don't know, Dave, You, I think you were talking about this earlier. Do you want to elaborate on this, or should we just kind of leave it for... Uh, let's, let's for, leave it for another time okay um i do want to mention that though that i'm beginning now to kind of become come to a to a resolution on what to do with all these great emails that we're getting from people and so i've created a new section on the website that is the beginnings of a uh, online discussion forum uh Ah. that that we're going to have there Uh, for the time being i've put uh, all of the emails that we've gotten over the last couple weeks in there and if you go to uh, our website uncontrolledairspace.com You'll see a link on the front page that's uh, actually the link's not there as I speak, so I don't exactly know what it says. But chances are it says forum <laughs> or something like that. And it says uh, watch this space. Yeah, and so uh, so kind of search the front page. You'll find a link of some sort that will take you to uh, something like forum or messages or discussion or some ter- language like that. 
And uh, what you'll see there right now is a simple list of all of these emails that we've gotten over the last couple of weeks, and you can go in and read them in detail. And uh, uh, eventually, we're going to put in the ability for you then to actually post a response so we can start a little discussion and have some threads going about these. So uh, um, Jim H.'s uh, email about uh, his Air France feedback and his ADSB uh, discussion is there, as well as a bunch of other really interesting ones, a lot of really interesting stories. We really struck a chord on the uh, on the door opening in flight thing. And and, uh, and there's a bunch there. Hopefully, we're going we're gonna to boil those down at some point and have a conversation about it here in the virtual hangar. But uh, check out the uh, the new budding forums area on the uh, Very cool. on the website. Very cool. I'm cool. Yeah. Uh, we are starting to reach the end of our allotted time here. Uh, I've jumped over a few things. Anything I skipped on the list that you guys don't want to skip? Uh, we can bring we can get back to some of these next week. Yeah, yeah. let's uh, um, let's carry some of these over. Okay. And uh, you know I'm 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 sure that after a certain point, listening to us becomes the the uh, oral equivalent of uh, of uh, Salmonex. So <laughs> I was going to say something along the lines of sticking toothpicks in your ears, but uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> hey, I get to listen to this podcast like three or four times every week. You know, it's part of the post production and whatnot, and I enjoy it every single time. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I was going to say. You're, you're, you're begging for me to hit you with my catchphrase. <laughs> okay, I'll stop then. Uh, Shoutouts. <laughs> Shoutouts. Any last last items you want to throw in here before we're done? I'd like to say uh, give my thanks again to all the great folks up at the uh, – the Glenn Curtis Museum in Hammondsport, New York. I was up there a few weeks ago where they were uh, introducing and christening their reproduction of Curtis's America, built in 1914. 72-foot wingspan, built to fly across the Atlantic. They spent three years uh, rebuilding it. It was supposed to fly that day. They knew it wouldn't first thing in the morning. Nobody was really concerned because, like, they say, oh, well, my father knew somebody worked with Curtis. And he said they didn't get it to work right the first time either. So they felt in great company. Thanks for all the hospitality up there. A wonderful museum. I can recommend it highly to anyone uh, who is in the area or isn't. Mm-hmm. Worth worth going to. Sounds great. Sounds great. What else? Dave, uh, you've been – this past week, you've, I, I alluded this earlier, and then we kind of didn't have time to go into it. But you've been uh, at the uh, – what is the Bombardier? Uh, what sta- what do they call it now? The aviation stand down. The uh, Bombardier safety stand down. Safety uh, stand down. This was the eleventh one, uh, and uh, yeah, spent last four days, starting with uh, hands on workshops Monday morning, and three days of uh, of presentations. Uh, what the organizers call a knowledge based learning experience. That is, uh, as opposed to stand- what? Safety stand. Well, <laughs> you, yeah, it, uh, by bad experience, little, having to learn by bad experience, I guess. As opposed I to guess. Yeah. Okay. There's perspective. You know, there's there's mechanical training, there's aircraft training, and then there's knowledge based training. Okay. The knowledge based right. aspect of it means that they spend a, the entire conference talking about things that have happened, and the human mental causes mm-hmm. behind those things that happen. This isn't about, well, if this breaker trips or you have an autopilot trim overrun, you know, how do you handle the airplane? You pull this breaker and you slow to V-ref and you uh, blah, blah, blah. There's none of that in this in this four days. Uh-huh. 
This yeah, is you, all human factors learning. We actually talked about this a, a bit a year ago when we, as we were just getting started with the podcast. But let's kind of make an appointment to talk about this in a future episode because sure. I'd like well, to hear more about. My shout out for the evening, and 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 we will talk more about uh, some of the details on this coming up. But my shout out for the evening goes to the uh, Bombardier Learjet staff uh, and the uh, Challenger marketing and uh, Challenger demonstration team staff. Bob Agostino, who's the director of uh, flight operations for Bombardier Aircraft. Uh, it is a huge effort. It's a massive undertaking. 20 presenters, uh, a whole day of things like uh, water ditching training and CPR and defibrillator use. Uh, the, the, they just do a phenomenal job. They had 530-plus participants this year. And they don't charge anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and by the a, way, a huge undertaking. And Bombardier. So congratulations to Bombardier, to Bob Agostino, to all the people that put it on. Uh, it was your best yet. Uh, I've been it to six of the 11. It was absolutely the best one yet. James, you were going to say? Hey, yes, I was going to point out that Bombardier also recently introduced a carbon neutral program for buyers of their aircraft that uh, they have an option so you can buy carbon offsets for your expected uh, carbon dioxide emissions on an annual basis and as other programs fractionals charters and card programs are instituted this money then goes to uh, third-party firms that fund uh, alternative energy sources so I mean a GA pilot would buy these uh, right now, I don't know of GA pilots, but I was talking to a number of the fractional companies, uh, charters, and card programs, and they are, well, actually, NetJets has a mandatory one that is going in where they're going to charge their fractional owners. Uh, a number of others are instituting uh, voluntary carbon offset programs where they will tell you what it would cost to offset that, and then companies like TerraPass that they partner with will take that money and fund biomass, wind energy, other alternative uh, energy sources. Interesting. And, and also uh, things that just mitigate carbon, uh, carbon mm-hmm. dioxide pollution. There is a program. I'll find it, see if I can't find the details on it. Uh, I saw a release on it several weeks ago uh, for private pilots to enroll their aircraft in a, uh, a carbon offset program. Uh, you know, and we're talking about, uh, I think they said, and I'll find out this more specifically, but you'd be talking about something in the neighborhood of a dollar per operating hour to, uh, to uh, be uh, effective in offsetting mm-hmm. the carbon emissions of the average light aircraft. Yeah. But, uh, They're not expensive for, uh, for a jet either. Their entire demo fleet in this program. Yeah, yeah. 250 about. Gs they're paying. Yep. Yeah. The- Jeb, any last words? Uh, just a, a shout-out to um, uh, a guy many of you uh, may know by talent, but perhaps not by name, uh, Mike Blakeney, uh, who is uh, one of the guys behind the scenes at AvWeb, uh, works on some of their podcasts uh, as a producer and, and kind of a, a lot of the stuff that uh, our, our dear Jack here uh, does on Uncontrolled Airspace. But I uh, just recently discovered uh, he's also a, a fellow Bonanza owner. 
Ah. And it has a very sweet 68 uh, model uh, 33 Bonanza. And uh, just wanted to uh, uh, mention him on air and uh, thank him for all of his hard work and uh, um, just recognize him in that fashion. Yeah, he's got a great radio voice. Oh, he's he got, does. He's got a he really serious, does. Serious radio. Ah. Voice. yeah. He, uh, <clears throat> I, he's. I believe he's actually a radio professional, right? He's. I think he is. Yeah. He's. He's clearly uh, quote unquote done this before. Yep. Yep. A ringer. But uh, yeah, puts together a great series of podcasts over there. So, uh, absolutely. Okay then. Well, uh, what a great evening it's been. I've enjoyed this a lot. Uh, 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 some good yeah. conversation here. Thanks yes. to. Uh, Thanks to James for being with us here in the hangar. Uh, James has uh, been involved with a lot of different uh, journalism and book writing and magazine article stuff. Uh, if you want to learn more about James on the Internet, just Google his name. You'll be amazed. It's a, it's a wild ride out there. It's well, amazing. thank you it's very incredible. much. Yep. Uh, it's always a pleasure to join you guys in the hangar or anywhere else. Terrific. Learn more about Jeb Burnside and his work at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com or avweb.com. You can learn more about Senior Capitan Higdon at uh, <laughs> at DaveHigdon.com. Learn I about have my to get that URL. Learn about my work. Yeah, there you go. Learn about my work at uh, JackHodgson.com or AroundTheField.net, and you can uh, follow a lot of all all of our activities at UncontrolledAirspace.com. Check out that new uh, forum section, the the budding forum section there. So, uh, thank you everyone for joining us this evening in the virtual hangar. We'll talk to you all again next time, and go. Red Sox. Yeah.